Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to the Reluctant Agilist. Dan Eberly is here today. Dan, say hi to everybody. Hello. And we're going to talk all about coaching stuff. But before we do that, Dan, would you tell these kind people where you're from and what you do? Yeah. So my name's Dan Eberly. I am an agile coach uh, with the New York Times. Uh, I also do a fair amount of um, presenting and um, kind of uh, public speaking, I guess you'd call it lecturing, although I try to make it as conversational as possible. Uh, so I run um, some meetup communities. Uh, I run the New York Times uh, Agile Lean NYT community of practice, as well as the Insurgent Agility community of practice. Uh, and that one is primarily focused on uh, using uh, agile, agile mindset, agile tools and practices outside of technology. It's a big uh, passion of mine because I am not, strictly speaking, a technologist. Okay. What's your favorite area to use it in outside of technology? So I do uh, a fair amount of film work and I am actually developing a Scrum-like framework for independent filmmaking, cross-functional filmmaking, for those people that work in the arts, particularly uh, in this modern age where technology has made everything smaller and more available, um, people are able to do a lot more things than they used to be able to do um, and, and uh, be able to share the work in, a, in new, new ways. So uh, I'm a big advocate of, of that and sort of leveraging very diverse backgrounds and perspectives uh, to increase the, the creative capability of teams of people in much the same way that we advocate that for, you know, your, your, uh, corporate, uh, tech teams or, or design or marketing team, yeah. any other kind of team. Cool. All right. Well, thank you. So I saw part of the talk that Dan gave the other night. It was really awesome. And I was having a great time. And then I had to go cause my wife called me and to go eat dinner and I set it to record the rest and none of it, none of the audio came through. So I missed a bunch, but I'm assuming that the rest of the talk was as good as the first part, the part that I saw. It's a great assumption. It was perfect. <laughs> um, so it was all about coaching. And I wanted to start out just with a sort of a, it may seem like a simple question, but to me, it's not a simple question. Because when I ask people this question in the classes I teach, I'm, I'm always concerned about the answer. So as somebody who is working as a professional coach, how would you describe the differences between teaching, facilitation, coaching, and mentoring? Yeah, so this is uh, this was kind of at the top of or near the top of my talk, and I always try to open all these kinds of classes or workshops or conversations with just a quick definition of terms, because I think that to your point, Dave, um, especially in the world of of corporate work and corporate speak. Um, we, and even outside of there, uh, we have a way of conflating things. We, we mash concepts together. We use the same word to describe four things. Um, so yeah, so, and, and a big part of what I do at the New York times and, and everywhere I go, uh, is to really help people, uh, build a common vocabulary and disambiguate, um, a lot of the meaning of different words. So in this instance, um, I was talking about the coaching stance in particular when we when we're sort of learning learning about agile, learning about Scrum, um, especially in Scrum Master classes, we talk about different stances that a um, that an agile facilitator or an agile Scrum Master or even a product owner, really anyone that is trying to be more agile, will take. And the idea is to build intentionality um, 
behind the the sort of the mode or motivation um, of of what you are doing in this moment. And so I'm taking the long way around your uh, uh, to your answer here, but. Uh, the, the, the four stances, and there are sometimes, depending on uh, who you're reading or talking to, you may have more than these, but the four principal stances are facilitator, teacher, mentor, and coach. And in my view, the coaching stance, um, which is not the only stance I use as a person with coach in his job title, um, but the coaching stance stands alone. So first of all, facilitator um, essentially is a process guide. Is, is helping a person or a group of people through a process. And you can do that a lot of different ways, but the I think the demarking attribute is that a facilitator doesn't take part in the content. So for example, if I'm, uh, I think the example I used the other night was if I'm, if I'm helping someone do their taxes, I might be describing what these fields are for, uh, but I won't necessarily be telling them what data to put in them or what is the best data to put in them. Um, in fact, a good facilitator is going to try to remain as impartial as possible. So um, similarly in, in agile um, events like uh, retrospectives, which is obviously not a strictly uh, agile event, um, but any kind of like big, important conversation, you have a professional facilitator that is guiding the, the, the group through the conversation, not necessarily making them talk about this and then making them talk about that, but making sure that voices are heard. And there's a whole host of very deliberate techniques that a facilitator yeah. can use to enable the flow of conversation to make sure it's equitable and that it's balanced um, and, and all the rest. Now, do you, um, I want to just interrupt you for please. one second. Do you um, find that when you are facilitating something, you also occasionally have to step into the other stances and then step back into facilitation? Why, yes. So okay. the, the teaching stance is very specific in that you, you have this body of knowledge and that you have to impart it to another. Um, and so in that stance, um, there again, you are, you're not, it's not your content. It is the content. Uh, and so a facilitator that is facilitating a thing may need to pause and, and do a little bit of teaching to bring people up to speed on perhaps like what the this purpose is why or, we have a daily scrum. This is how it works. Right. And then yeah. do with that what you will. Exactly. And that's, and that, that last bit is actually the secret sauce of being a good uh, agile coach or scrum master, um, which is how exactly you engage these stances. So knowing the stances, just like everything is just a, is just a part of the puzzle here. Um, but it is important to have a real strong sense of when you are facilitating versus when you are teaching. And again, not to conflate the two, but to, um, to switch stances with intentionality. Um, I kind of think about all these stances, like practicing them the same way that you would, you know, practice martial arts moves. You know, there's that, that whole, um, I mean, there's endless martial arts metaphors here, but you know, the <laughs> idea that I go through, learn all these patterns doesn't necessarily mean I can fight, you know? Um, but it is, is still an integral part of becoming a better fighter is to, to, uh, internalize this, uh, this body of knowledge. Anyway. Can I, can I, can I make one connection to that? Please. I want to see if I can do it. So, and I'm trying to clarify a point as well. When you start, whether it's a martial art move or a dance move or anything that you're doing, a lot of us tend to be really clumsy with it. And my experience, I mean, I'm, I'm 
sort of what I'm wanting to ask is, at the beginning stages, did you find that you were kind of awkward with this stuff? And then it gets to a point where it's not only something that you've learned how to do, but something that you no longer think about. It reflects, it just happens. So I you have- realize you've switched mm-hmm. after you've already switched. I have two minds about this. Okay. The answer is yes, but I think it's contextual. So in other words, the way that I facilitate or the way that I teach and or, because you do use, you use all yeah. these stances in life and in, right. in work. Um, but the way that I do these things, I can get comfortable and can sort of have that um, unconscious intentionality with, I'm sure there's a better uh, term of art there. Um, but uh, but it's only with this group of per- people or persons. So in okay. other words, every time I switch theaters, every time I, I move to my gig to another club or you know whatever, a different audience, yeah. I need to relearn how to do these things and I need to leave myself space to be clumsy uh, because you are clumsy. We yeah. are going to be clumsy every time. So learning how to facilitate is not a one-shot deal. It is not deterministic. You don't learn how to do it and it works every time. That's definitely not true. Otherwise, Mike Tyson would still be the, the greatest boxer ever and would never have lost. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you. Sure. So, um, so we we covered facilitation. That's a, that's a process guide. A teacher is essentially an educator on a on a specific uh, body of knowledge. And then we've got mentoring, and mentoring is typically a one on one thing. Um, it is very hard to mentor a whole bunch of people at once. Uh, and the reason why is because in the, in the world of mentoring, you're really a personal guide. You are guiding someone. Th- uh, based on your personal experience and and probably providing a, a fair amount of advice. This is not necessarily something you do in the teaching stance or the facilitating stance. I'm probably not going to offer you a lot of advice on what you should enter in this field when you're filling out your tax return. Sure. Uh, but I will let you know, like, these are some things, here are some examples of what could go in here, but I'm really going to go out of my way not to actually um, intercede in, into the into the content. As a mentor, you know, it's a, it's a little different, right? As typically, somebody's coming to me because they want to do something uh, or they're, they're on the path of doing something that they think I can help them with. So they're really interested in my personal history, or I believe, uh, you know, in collaboration with them that some of my experience could help inform them. Uh, and clearly there's a tremendous amount of trust that we've built up, rapport, we understand each other, uh, or at least we have committed to understand each other. And so it's a very intimate relationship. And like I said, it tends to be more one-on-one. So it's very different than just teaching someone or facilitating an exercise or a process. I want to, I have one question about this. Something a friend of mine who runs mentoring program said to me was that in a mentor-mentee relationship, the value has to be completely bi-directional. Like the mentee is a mentor to the mentor. Hmm. And you're it. both supposed to be getting an equal amount of learning and knowledge and positive experience out of this interaction. I, Do you I, find that that's true or is it more of a... Oh, I think that I wish I would have known that one. I would, I'm going to start saying that. Uh, (laughs) It's absolutely true. It's true because, um, I mean, arguably some form of, of that kind of interchange occurs in all of these stances. I mean, you do want that. That's just like good human relationships are two way streets, right? Yeah. Um, And, you know, you know, that you're, that you're learning something 
when you're teaching people and they're getting it, you know? Um, and the same for facilitation as a facilitator. And, and you and I certainly have done a fair amount of facilitation. Um, we know that it is very rewarding when we facilitate uh, an event or a conversation that um, especially a hard one and, and we did it, you know, and it's like, that's awesome. So I am, I'm learning, I'm getting something from it. Uh, if I'm getting nothing from it and I do it, uh, I'm, I don't know if I did a good job or not, but it's, yeah, it's, yeah, I, I think that that's definitely true for mentorship, absolutely, because of the personal nature of it and because it requires so much self-inspection yeah. in order to to help other people inspect what they're doing. You really have to model, uh, you know, very specific kinds of behaviors and 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 habits and patterns that you, uh, to, in order for it to be valuable. So, yeah. Beautiful. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Um, and then uh, last one is the coaching stance, which I always say is, is a little bit weird because it's, it gets very nebulous and this is actually this stance and really drilling into what it is in some ways is the, um, kind of the fork in the road for a lot of people that are thinking about becoming scrum masters or agile coaches in my view, okay. because this line of work, let's just keep it as scrum master for now. Cause we have a lot of scrum masters out there. Right. Um, it can be, and, and again, um, and, and Dave and I were talking before we got going here about how so much agile experience and the things that we do and the things we learn that inform what we do next um, is just, it's all context. So different kinds of, of worlds that we work in just can have wildly different, uh, can look wildly different, um, you know, to, to each of us, if we were to be transplanted to a military base in, in Indiana where they might be doing scrum, you know, and yeah, yeah it, it could be very different than, than what we, or it might look very much the same. Um, but anyway, uh, what I'm getting at here is that uh, coaching and, um, and particularly scrum mastering, sometimes there's not, um, uh, sometimes you don't know if you're, if you're doing it, basically, you don't really know if you're successful. There's not a, a necessarily a prize at the end of the of the game uh, for you, um, and and really like it's it's sad. It's a little bit like parenting sometimes, and that you give and you give, and your your kids take all of your your money and your <laughs> just everything, and yeah. and you're happy that they made it and that they're off doing their thing, and even though it's not the thing you asked them to do, <laughs> or they, you know, whatever it's, to, but you know they're they're happy and they're, they're going places and, and you're kind of back at home. Uh, you know, anyway, I, this is, this went a little darker than I wanted no, it to. No, but... I want to add, I want to, yes, I want to climb Please. onto this. So um, I totally agree with what you're saying. I, I was started laughing because I was thinking, you don't know if it's working, but you damn sure know when it isn't working. Yes. <laughs> they're doing all the things you're telling them not to do. I work with a guy who tells this story about he was at a client, and and if if you're if you've not been a coach, one thing that happens is you'll be at a client for a while, and then it, it's sort of like you outlive your shelf life. Like they just stop listening to you, and then they yeah. don't want you there anymore. And that's just part of the gig. This guy, you know, had been in a place for a while, and he like moved on, and he saw somebody that he'd been coaching like a year or so later, and they were like, you know, all that stuff you kept trying to get us to do, and he's like, yeah, he's like, well, after you left, we actually did it, and it totally worked. Mm. <laughs> It's the best. No. Yeah. Thanks um, for nothing. Yeah. Because um, you don't get this. You have to have a lot of, well, actually, let me ask you this question. So if you don't know if the things that you're trying to convey are 
being absorbed or, or having the, you know, you don't get to see that the impact, how do you judge your success? I mean, this is, you know, I, at work, we have this little, uh, and I, I don't think this is really outing any, anything, but it's like, we have a, we have a little Slack channel called the, the scrum master support group <laughs> where we okay. yeah. basically commiserate and, uh, and talk about, uh, about this very topic frequently, uh, because, because sometimes there just isn't, sometimes there just isn't a, a way to measure success. Now, I will say I was very, very fortunate in my, my early, well, not my earliest agile adventures, but certainly when I made the transition to wanting to scrum master and coach, uh, and just started fully doing that, uh, I had some awesome teams that, that were amazing to work with. And even though I was clumsy and did the wrong things and said the wrong things sometimes, together, we really got to some great places. And so um, I guess for, you know, that helped shape and, and sort of um, empower and embolden me to go forward and build on what I've learned. And eventually I cast aside a lot of things down the line, which happens, uh, that's the beauty of professional experience is that you realize, oh man, I used to say that, or I used to think that. That doesn't mean that it wasn't valuable. It just, you know, um, th this is the the wonderful thing about, about things like Scrum, about these wonderful frameworks that are so flexible and leave so much room for you to get right for your situation. Um, and and that's, that's really what Agile is all about. And it's easy to, for us to get confused with all of like absorbing all of the information and agile as a doctrine and, and thinking of it like this, this religion or this, um, you know, this, this, uh, list of, of things that must be checked off at all times when it's really an aspiration, you know? Yeah. And, um, but anyway, the, the, I, I think that, that for me, the, as a coach, uh, and before that as a scrum master, just embedded in teams. And I think of scrum masters as agile coaches that just happen to be inside a team versus outside a team. That's my personal view. I know that it's different. We're going to have to dig back into that in a minute. Okay. <laughs> I had a feeling we might, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's, that's my very reductive kind of attitude about agile coaches versus right. scrum masters. I think that they do a lot of the same things. I think that there are definitely trade-offs in, in for, for both. And that's why it's good to have both. Okay. Um, and so I, I don't think one's better than the other, or that one is more necessarily more senior or better, like literally better at agile than the other or, yeah. or knows more. Um, I think typically we do see that. Uh, I think that's a pattern today, but I don't necessarily think that that's always the case. Um, I haven't actually described the coaching stance. So if anybody's still like waiting for us to get to that, I would just say <laughs> for those of you that are still listening. Yeah. For, for those of you that are following <laughs> the, the structure of this conversation, um, cause we had originally agreed we'd spend like a minute talking about the That's four right. stances. Goes now where it goes. Yes. We're, we're uh, uh, all right. So uh, just to recap, for those of you who uh, st stepped away for a, for a drink, uh, facilitator is uh, is a uh, process guide, uh, helping us understand, go through a process. The teacher is just educating us on a body of knowledge. A mentor is um, a guide based on personal experience, a personal guide. So I've done this. I was, a, you know, uh, I don't know. I was a um, uh, train conductor. Yes, I was a train conductor for many years. Let me tell you how I got into the game back when when uh, trains train were the conducting thing. game. Yeah. <laughs> and now the coaching stance is different because really the role of the the or the purpose of the coaching stance is to enhance 
your client, and I use client in air quotes, it's just kind of a placeholder. Uh, you could be working with a group of people, you could be working with a one person, um, but your client, you're trying to enhance their ability to learn and make better decisions for themselves. So it's about building capability into another and enabling them to uh, basically learn uh, for themselves, uh, learn from what they, the choices that they make, maybe even help them design a, a plan of attack for how they can have uh, what we would call in Agile and Scrum, like an empirical mindset, like treating things like experiments, sure. uh, breaking things down into smaller batches and trying to, uh, to understand the uh, maybe the cause and effect of 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 what they're doing, perhaps why they're doing it, and so as a as a coach, you you use all the stances. As a scrum master, you use all the stances, and really as a person, you use all of these stances. The reason that we talk about them and that we have quadrants all the time is really for illustrative reasons and to help people understand and not conflate them. And the reason why is not because you can't switch real fast. Or even perhaps I'm sure that there are people that do hybrids of these, like, you know, Dave has been in the game much longer than me. I'm sure that there's a lot of things, and I think you were getting at this, Dave, that like there's some in, there's a, an internalization that takes place that makes these stances uh, part of you, and it, you intuitively just do them as uh, reflexively. Um, and, and perhaps uh, you've developed your own kind of personal method for how to how to engage people using using this stuff. But the idea here is simply to be able to inspect and adapt what and why you're doing what you're doing uh, better. Uh, and it's very hard to inspect if everything is sort of ambiguous and shoved together. So yeah. I'm a coach, I'm going to facilitate, I'm going to teach, I'm going to mentor, I'm going to coach, I'm going to do it all. And I'm not really going to think about the stances at all. <laughs> okay. You, you're kind of heading for some, um, you're heading for some awkward times if you, yeah. if you don't really think about this stuff. And there's plenty of, um, of opportunities to, to use these stances very deliberately in your day-to-day -day as an Agilist. So, okay, I want to hit on that point. So practice this stuff wherever you can, inside work, outside work. Yeah. Um, it's funny when you were talking about that thing at the end, I was thinking, well, maybe it's not a hybrid. Maybe it's just sloppy. <laughs> um, but, but I, the thing that I always come back to is I noticed that, um, at some point in time, I would start to notice like about three quarters of the way to the second day in a, in a training class, I would suddenly, I mean, I'd be noticing that the students were fried, but then all of a sudden I'd be like, God, I'm really like amped up. What the hell? I'm like super loud and super like fast paced. And it occurred to me that like, oh, this I've, I reacted like 20 minutes ago and didn't notice it, that I'm trying to like bring energy back into this, yeah. you know, worn out sleepy room. And that was the thing I was like, when it, when it happens and after it happens, you notice that it happened and you figure out what it was. That, that to me is like an interesting place to be, which is the opposite of awkward. Do you, just to, to do a slight rabbit hole, I'm curious to know. Uh, because I think all of us that deal with rooms full of people and standing in front of them talking a lot yeah. uh, or trying to get them to talk to us, which is sometimes like pulling teeth, um, when you feel that sleepy cloud kind of enter the room and mm -hmm. people are, you know, the, the, the sleeping uh, gas is be being piped in, um, is there, I mean, I assume that you anticipate that this is going to happen at this point. You've been teaching these CSM and CSPO courses for years. 
I anticipate it, but I don't always know what's going to bring them back if I can mm. bring them back. And I don't know when it's going to happen. Like every class hits a wall, mm. but I never know when the wall is coming. Um, but I don't know when I'm going to hit the wall either. So that's mm. the other thing is I think you, you have to, I think maybe the thing that has developed the most is my ability to be more aware of that like constantly monitoring it, not even like a front of mind, but constantly like watching it yeah. to notice like when I'm getting dopey or sleepy and and having techniques to work out of that or or even if I can't get myself out of it, like how do I deal with that? Noticing it with the students is tough as well. And it's a lot harder virtually too. I will say that definitely. You know, I was, uh, I was when the, when the pandemic kicked off and I, you know, I, a lot of work I do at the New York Times was always virtual or there was always virtual elements to it because we have a lot of uh, distributed team members. And usually I, you know, I, I come from the Dave Pryor school. I prefer sort of tactile stuff where I can. I remember um, people asked you in my, in the product class I took with you, you were, I think asked you about tooling, like what, you know, <laughs> what is the best, what's the best way to, you know, what's the best tool to use my user stores? You just like held up a, a marker and post-it and post notes and you're like, nothing's like, you know, nothing as good as this. Yeah. And, um, and so, so yeah, so I was, I was, a, I was a little bit concerned. Uh, I wasn't sure how it was going to go, but I really made the most of it. And, and, and Dave, you saw my, my setup here. I have a little studio yeah. here, very high def camera. I have lights all over the place. I've really gone all out. I didn't do that just for, for this, but I, I realized that um, if I want to, uh, cause I teach four classes a week uh, or between two and four, depending on the week. And so I do a, not as long as yours. I don't do like eight hour classes, right. uh, but, uh, but you know, fair amount. And they're, they're open to anyone in the company. And in doing so uh, I really need to make sure that there is a, there is a show to watch, you yeah. know, and it's performance. Uh, yeah. And so with that, you know, I think that I was, I, I, I had a lot of energy, you know, kicking off because it was sort of like pandemic hit. Everyone was kind of freaking out that we're all hundred percent virtual, but then I kind of came out with, I, I kicked up my classes a notch. I kicked up the production value and uh, got a giant whiteboard and just really put a lot of heart and soul into uh, the, the teaching aspect of what I'm doing. And in doing that, I got a much bigger audience um, and everything was going well. But then um, around, I want to say toward um, the holidays, uh, I noticed that um, everyone was more and more tired. Attendance was starting to Yeah, it's a different phase of the pandemic we're in now. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and, you know, at a big company, you've got the planning cycles, which everybody uh, loves so much and looks forward to yeah. <laughs> cramming, um, you know, uh, uh, whatever. In, in our case, we do. I mean, we don't do waterfall. Oh, so you, you're talking about the, there's the work part of it plus the pandemic part of it. I was thinking more about how people are currently responding to the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, people are uh, definitely struggling. I wasn't really struggling that much. I'm pretty comfortable on camera and I enjoy the performative uh, aspect of what we do. So for me, it was just like an interesting new ch next chapter, right? How yeah. can I make the most of this? But, uh, but yeah, I'm definitely starting to see it in the audience more and more that people can only process so much. And uh, yeah, um, I recommend uh, maybe if you can whittle your certification class down to like an hour and just do like eight episodes. <laughs> or call 16. with the Scrum Alliance. Yeah, let's get them on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> so that's so that's interesting. Like I'm, it, it almost feels to me like right now, 
you know, there's articles coming out now saying it's going to be over really soon. And I know there's parts of the country that are opened up, but for at least in New York, it seems sort of like we're stuck in the doldrums. Like the mm -hmm. boat's just not going, there's no wind. You can't, you know that someday it's going to be over, but yeah. And I think that that's had an effect on at least people that I talk to, it seems like. Um, it's like a dark turn almost for a lot of yeah. folks right now. Well, let's, it's very good. Yeah, I was just going to say the last thing is just uh, like from a facilitation standpoint, when we're talking about work, work, um, yeah. you know, uh, asking people to do sort of uh, year end retrospectives, you know, bigger room retros, you know, these kinds of delicate conversations that require a lot of participation, um, you know, it, it can be really hard, uh, especially when people are just like mentally gassed, you know, it's like, yeah. We don't have anything left for you. Um, so yeah, uh, definitely feeling the pain. Yeah, and they've been on Zoom for a year. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it's not like there was a break in the middle. Um, well, let's, can we just go back to the coaching or scrum master thing? Um, I, I have trouble articulating the differences there, except to say that a coach is somebody who studies that as coaching as a craft, typically. And they're in a position normally where they're able to have conversations with a wider part of the organization at a higher level, maybe in the organizational structure of the organization. Yeah. They're also somebody who is brought in. Now you're, you're in an interesting situation because you're staff, right? Yes. I'm an internal coach at the New York Times. So I don't, uh, I, I don't really operate like a, like a consultant on a contract or here to, to help a very specific thing or do kind of precision coaching. I'm, right. I'm really available to the entire uh, company um, as needed. Okay. Cause it's, it, to me, like the, the downside of the consultant coach is a lot. Some, some people will come in consultants in general hmm. and they are operating under the mission of I'm going to embed myself here for as long as I possibly can. Right. Um, but I also think there's something to say for the fact that, like I knew when I was coaching, if I pissed the client off because I pushed too hard, uh, my company would just send me somewhere else. Like, well, it wasn't anything. I didn't worry about getting shown the door because I pushed somebody a little too hard. It wasn't like a, a fear thing. I mean, I didn't do it often, but um, it's a different dynamic. I've never, I have been a consultant before, um, but uh, not as an agile coach, but I can completely see. So there, there's a, um, there was a big, uh, I think it was a Scrum Alliance um, kind of agile coaching, coaching festival that they did. Uh, I want to say late last year, it was like five days long. And I don't know if this is ringing a bell for you. I should really have, I didn't realize we were going to talk about this. So I, uh, but anyway, <laughs> but we had, it was like all about enterprise coaching. Right. Right. And I did, um, I actually stumbled into this class where we were doing role playing and I didn't know that I had basically walked on stage and, uh, there is this guy, um, who is quite a character in the less community, um, who I was always kind of scared of. Um, and he was my scene partner and, Basically, I just showed up in this meeting. I was a few minutes late and they're like, okay, you're up. And I'm like, oh, oh my God. And, uh, and, and, and the guy, his name's Gene. He's a really nice guy, but, uh, you know, I didn't know him well. And he's very, very wise and advanced agilist. And so I was, I'm intimidated naturally. And uh, he was like, so, uh, so what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, I, um, 
you know, I've been thinking a lot about um, enterprise coaching and executive coaching. And, and this was, I feel like this is sort of where I, my next focus needs to be uh, because teams have limitations to what they can accomplish. And you know, at some point you have to look at what's going on around them um, to your point. Uh, and that's really, you know, where agile coaches can do some of the most substantive good is how they counsel leadership or damage uh, or damage. And, uh, <laughs> and I will just say that, um, you know, I know more about enterprise coaching now than I did at this time, but realize uh, something they don't necessarily teach you in your, um, you know, in your early uh, Scrum Alliance certification classes that um, it's not enough just to be really good at Scrum and know a bunch of things and tips and tricks. Like you, you there's a completely different mindset when dealing with, um, with leaders <laughs> yes. and with executives, uh, very different and just a whole other set of values. Um, and you answer questions differently, you interact differently. There's just a lot of differences. And that's really what the theme of this whole festival was, was to get all these badass, um, really established enterprise coaches, some very heavy hitters, all the, the stars of, of Agile, yeah. um, to, to hear them talk about what that is, is like and what it takes. So anyway, so I'm in my little improv, my Agile improv class. And I tell, uh, I tell my friend, Gene, um, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm thinking about enterprise coaching and executive coaching. He's like, okay, great. Do you want to be the executive or do you want me to? And I'm like, well, how about if, how about if uh, you, you play the the boss and I'll be the coach. And then we, we proceed to do this whole scene, right? Where I just he, figured out who it is you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a lot of genes. In uh, the list, yeah. It but, took me a second. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, super great guy, really sharp. Uh, everyone should run out and take his classes. I haven't taken them, but, uh, my <laughs> but you should. You should let me know. Um, so anyway, so Gene, uh, so we go through this thing and I'm, you know, talking about values and understanding outcomes and all this sort of soft stuff. And my whole thing was, my focus was, I don't want to be prescriptive. I want to make as much space as possible to understand the client's motivation, what they care about and, and help maybe help elucidate that for them too. Like, right. you know, uh, and then, and then we can figure out, okay, well, this is what you care about. This is where you want to be. Uh, because you know, everyone that engages any kind of agilist always starts with problems. Tell me, you know, I've, I've got this thing. Can you just come and fix this thing for me? It's just driving me crazy. Yeah. They don't know how to do it. Right. Whatever. You know? And it's like, it's rarely the thing, right? It's always a sense of really the thing. And they want you to fix it for them. Yes. Yes. Yep. So with that, uh, so we go through this exercise and it's all like big boss hog sort of, um, you know, uh, very major <laughs> problems like the, the <laughs> where we, we and I'm I'm a little bit in over my head, but I'm just thinking I'm really thinking like more about my bedside manner and trying not to be directive because that's a thing that um, is, is always a big no, no. Like now I will just say that there is a place for that. I just in case anybody's turning this podcast off, there is a place to be directed, but it takes time to build that kind of rapport and trust where you can actually make suggestions. It's really not being directive right? to, to be a contributor. Um, and uh, this guy, Michael Hammond, actually, who is amazing, yeah. uh, amazing dude. I got to watch him actually coach someone kind of like this very klutzy scene that I'm describing, but he was like a complete master. Like it was unbelievable watching this guy work. And it was like watching, um, you know, like a, a, a HBO series about a, a really thoughtful psychologist or something. You know what I mean? Like, it was just like amazing how he worked with this, this person who was talking apparently about a real problem. 
And I was like, I need to be just like, I need to be just like Michael Hammond. I'm going to do it. And uh, so I'm in this thing and I'm trying to be Mr. Thoughtful Guy, but I really didn't know what I was doing very well. And at the end, during the, the feedback session, um, Gene was like, well, no, I thought you actually did a great job not telling me what to do, uh, but you actually didn't really say anything. And, you know, without going over the whole scene, I'll just say that he was he was sort of playing a guy that uh, felt disconnected from what was happening below him. Yeah. And and he had sent one of his lieutenants off to Silicon Valley to see how some startups were working and had heard about these amazing things. And um, and he just feels like, I don't know what to do. I, I give them bonuses and pay them all this money and they still they still suck. And I yeah. just you know, anyway, it was pretty good. He, he did a great job. And, um, and his whole point was you never really talked about organizational structure or design. You just never went there. Um, and basically what I learned from that interaction and from, from a lot of interactions around it is that it's our role as, as coaches and to some extent as, as scrum masters too, actually everybody, everybody should do this. We need to challenge, uh, assumptions and, an agile coach has an opportunity to do that from an organizational design standpoint. If they, if that's sort of in their bailiwick, there's different yeah. kinds of coaches with different kinds of expertise, but that classic enterprise agile coach is thinking a lot about organizational design because particularly at scale, when a, and we're talking about bigger companies, uh, structure actually dictates culture. We tend to think that culture comes first and then we can just sort of build a structure around it. But actually in a lot of ways, structure will define what culture is. And you can only get so far optimizing inside of a system that is structured to keep you apart. Right. And a lot of times the scrum master who's working with a couple of software teams, is just not gonna have an audience to really address that. They may have the insight, they may actually be able to see it. And it but is in the, the agency sort of to get the change to occur. Probably not. Uh, and that's just an unfortunate fact of life, which is, something that uh, a good enterprise agile coach, if they're around, can help try to address bringing that, what I would describe as a decision-making waterfall, which exists even in very agile companies or companies that are trying to be more agile. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times we still have these decision-making silos where people in this box over here are making decisions that get passed down to box number two and so on and so forth. And there's many boxes down, many layers down. We've got people that have to live with the consequences that Napoleon um, you know, has, has decided must be so. And so the idea of bringing those people together, you know, that's, that's sort of like the most agile thing of all is this, this concept of, of cross-functionality. It's not just about like our capabilities as a, as a creative team or a development team. It's also about our capabilities as a decision-making team having um, what they what they call in evidence-based management, bottom-up intelligence, actually comprising uh, decision-making leadership bodies with non-leaders, putting some of them in there, not not necessarily turning the keys, uh, the RV over <laughs> to, right. the, to the- But there are people to, that to, are going to yeah. offer a different a different viewpoint. I mean, it's, to me, you know, the way you described it, I totally agree with that. I always think of it more as your job is to help them see their options yeah. And then they're going to make the choices you're going to make and you're going to be there to help them regardless of, of what the decision is. This, this actually ties back to exactly the point that you made earlier about how do we know if we're successful as scrum yeah. masters and agile coaches when the truth is, is that the value that we deliver 
is the transparency. It really is. That's all that we can really do. Now, that's a huge freaking job. It is big and it requires a lot of participation. It's not just something that I show up and do for you. I do it with you. Um, there are, there are definitely vehicles to achieve what I, I would say that these are vehicles to achieve actual empathy and diversity, but diversity of thought. It's more about just background. That's a huge part of it. It's also about your station in the, in the, the caste system of your organization. Um, having those perspectives is going to allow you to make better decisions faster, but yeah. it requires uh, a trust and you have to trust people with information. Information can't be commodified. It has to be free. It just has to exist. And that's what transparency is. So like we talked about Jim Benson and his whole thing about visualizing work, it's rocket science. And that is actually the ultimate thing that the gift that, that we can give each other is actual true visibility into what the hell is going on. Uh, because you just, you know, otherwise you, you can't really manage you can't really manage what you can't visualize. We just need that as people. I think we've proven that. Uh, I think, and, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, well, Google Docs and spreadsheets don't get it done. Um, it's not enough. We need to actually map it out and see it. I, I, I agree with you. I wanted to just to add that it's visibility without judgment. Um, to me, that's the same as like the way that a coach is supposed to leave their ego out of the equation. Your job is to help them achieve what, they need feel they need to achieve helping somebody see their choices without being like or you could choose that one you know and like poo-pooing on the option just to to try to i mean is that that's got to be something that takes a lot of effort is to not telegraph what you want them to do i mean i consider that i mean i have a, a couple different points on that but it's one of the big guidelines for me as a coach and i will be the first to admit and as a fellow person who frequently admits what they're not good at, um, this is something that I have to continually work on and be aware of, which is um, basically not to make any any kind of engagement or interaction about me. Um, there is a wonderful saying um, that says that uh, as as agile coaches, like the the times where we model agile values and principles is like when we're walking down the hall, you know, in those moments where we're not sort of on stage. Yeah. Um, the, the idea that you have a good rapport with someone and you've reached that point of trust where you can actually have a freer exchange of ideas and you can make suggestions in a non-destructive way, um, you know, that is a great place to be. It is wonderful. It's not going to happen every time, but no matter what you can, the, the less uh, sort of editorial judgment that you're making about what is happening, the less opining, the better. You should yeah. really, you should really leave your opinion at the door. And that also, I used to think that that was about like what the client is doing or thinking of doing. Um, and I, I think that that's definitely number one, but also when people, you know, people frequently feel suppressed by others, by the actions of others or by, you know, structures and systems, or whatever. Um, and we also, we also shouldn't opine about those either. And the reason why is because it's not our job to say whether something is right or wrong, unless, you know, obviously, unless somebody's getting slapped or screamed at or something like that. I think that there are certain limits to this. Yeah. But generally speaking, what we're going for is to have a dispassionate interchange of ideas and entertain the possibility that things are not what they seem. 
And the only way that we can really have an honest view of that is if we are not sort of making a furtherance of the emotionality of the situation, you know, of the, of the perception of the situation. Um, now, there are going to be times when you will have an opinion, you'll share it. And I mean, I do it. I shouldn't do it sometimes. And I do anyway. And I frequently regret it. Uh, sometimes you can get lucky and you can hit the nail on the head, but you're taking on a lot of risk when you start taking a stand as a coach um, with, with uh, you know, in, in helping a, an individual or a team, uh, because it doesn't act, it's not actually productive to build uh, adversarial relationships or the perception of adversary. It doesn't help. It really doesn't. The truth is, is that we all are probably after the same thing and that the best gift we can do is to get us all on the same side of the table. It's a really big table. Um, not sitting on the other side to, to sort of negotiate out, you know, um, what we want and, and, and really get over on someone else or something like that, you know, and that's why there's a lot of talk about protecting the team and, you know, getting in the, you know, in between, uh, you know, other people in the team. And, and I mean, I get, I get what it's about and it's not entirely wrong, but it's like, it does, it, it there's not a lot of mileage in that kind of thinking. Okay. Um, do you have time for one more question about this stuff? I have time for all of your questions. Oh, well, that could take a really long time because I've been <laughs> developing more and more, but I'm going to, I'm going to try to limit it to one. Okay. Um, for people that are on a path where they're moving from scrum master into coaching, like for me, I'd been doing consulting a long time. I went in as a scrum master. I came out as a coach, but I don't know when that transition occurred. And I think I was still called a scrum master when I was actually working as an agile coach within the organization. Like, how do you know when you're a coach? Um, hmm. I think that it's a recognition of where you can serve best. Okay. Um, and, and, and what I mean by that is it's, I mean, there's two ways to look at it. You can look at it as a limitation. Like I am no good as a scrum master on a team. I don't have the patience for it. I need to really go after this from outside. I need to really, um, I can help these people more from over here. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's more about like looking at it from a positive angle than a negative. There yeah. are some people that really prefer to really embed with teams, really get into the nitty gritty. See, that's why I was laughing. Cause like the thought of enterprise coaching to me sounds like going to the dentist, but you put me with a team. I'm like, yeah, all right. Yeah. I'll do that. <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of amazing, you know, influencers in the agile space and, and certainly some of the inventors of scrum who say things like, yeah, I always want to be scrum mastering no matter what. Um, you know, even when I'm an enterprise coach, I like to embed with at least a team just so that I can kind of keep sharp. I think that there's a lot of utility in that, even if you're yeah. not great at it. There's a lot that you learn from uh, seeing the organization from different angles. So I always recommend doing it. But I think for me, um, I have I'm I am 46. I'm 46, I think, maybe 47. You know, you're getting older when you can't remember your age. And um <laughs> I mean, I have been, uh, I have worked in all kinds of, of uh, industries. Um, and really, I mean, I say I have 20 years of media experience. It's more like 30. And so the totality of my experience, really, I, I think that I, I do more good uh, working with leaders, working with managers, helping people understand how they can really support yeah. uh, their teams, uh, as opposed to kind of being 
entirely uh, on the team, involved with teams. Just be, and it's not because I don't like. I, I love it. The camaraderie is awesome. Like that's the one bummer about being a, like sort of an enterprise level coach is that you're just kind of floating around. You don't really necessarily have your buds all the time. Although if you're lucky, you have you do have sort of a cohort. Yeah, of, you need you need to have that cohort to pick you yeah. back up on the bad days. It's huge. And uh, I learned a lot about that listening to you talk about your personal agility canvas, which is uh, oh, an good. awesome innovation. <laughs> Highly recommended Thank personal you. agility canvas. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, and, and in my case, I do, I have sort of my little agile cabal. Uh, I've got, uh, I, I luckily I, I get to uh, provide a, a little bit of mentorship and, and buddyship to the scrum masters that we have at, at the times. And then there's also like lots of other random people that I've just um, you know, develop relationships with. But one of the things that I, I forgot to mention before that in when I was working with Gene that in my little uh, agile improv class, he was like, you know, you're an internal coach. And so you have a hard time challenging the status quo because you work there. Whereas a consultant doesn't have, doesn't care. It's like, they're so here maybe to that's like, a conceit that the, the hmm. consultant, the, you know, that we all have like, Oh, well, you're, you're internal. Oh, all right, whatever. <laughs> well, they think that they're better because they they think that I don't have this obligation. I don't worry about getting fired. I mean, I don't work in a particularly fiery environment, yeah. thank God. Uh, so, and, and we have a, I mean, we pride ourselves on a very free flow of, of dialogue. And so, so that's great. Um, now, whether or not the, the things that we say, you know, get picked up and acted upon, you, you know, your mileage may vary, yeah. uh, but at least there's a lot of people are free to, to speak their, their truth. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. I will just say that there is something to that though, if nothing else, because uh, internal coaches are part of the status quo. Yeah. Um, it just makes sense that we're only going to really challenge a structure from a certain, uh, to a certain degree. It, it will take a lot of personal work to, to stand outside of it. That yeah. said, I, I, I'm working on it. I, uh, I read a lot and I well, also you, you're going to have more insight into the organization's tolerance for change. Like I really believe that, and I haven't found anything that uh, <laughs> I haven't found that this idea exists anywhere outside of my own head, but I believe that organizations have a, what would be like a whip limit for change. There's a certain amount of change they can handle, and then a certain point where it just tips completely over and everybody snaps back to the old way. Yeah. You're going to have more insight into that than an external coach possibly could. You're going to know the players better than the external coach possibly could. Yeah. I mean, it's it kind of goes back to the idea that, and in, in we talk about this certainly in Scrum, we talk about it in, in uh, human-centered design, the idea that teams solve problems better than individuals um, yeah. hero culture is, is it, there's just so much risk there. Um, mm -hmm. and ultimately it, it takes, it just takes us working together. Um, yeah, it's, it's true. Uh, and, you know, and I will just say, you know, I, there's a lot of, of, um, safety in being, uh, being an internal coach. Um, but there, there are definite trade-offs and things that you need to, to be constantly aware of. And I will just say Alistair Coburn, I was listening to him talk uh, recently, um, and he was talking about, um, the importance of micro improvements. This is one of those things that certainly young, uh, young folks or, or people new to agile, the, the agile revolution, wanting to bring massive change and all of this. Um, it is really cool. Uh, but you, you're right. I think your, your notion of change 
limiting change um, is is critical because it's actually a, a it's a it's a long game. It's not about changing things overnight because the the balancing loops are strong and not identified. So the things that are going to pull us back uh, are easier to recognize when when we do smaller smaller units. Yeah. And and we can we can we can wrap our heads around it better. And again, it's it's all part of uh, that same theme of really just having more intentionality and understanding of what we're doing. Yeah, cool. This was great. What about uh, one final word of advice for anybody heading down the path of think they think they want to be a coach? What would you say to them? What would I say? What do they need to know? What's the thing that nobody's telling them that they need to know that that you know? What do I know that no one else knows? Or that nobody who's coming up <laughs> as a coach knows? Um, I think it's that, actually, it's that thing that um, that we did at the top of my presentation the other day that you came to. Yeah. Um, I actually borrowed it from a, from a book that I highly recommend. I, by the way, generally, I just recommend continuous learning. There is never enough stuff. And, and you don't have to learn everything, but you should always be taking in new ideas and challenging your old ones. But there is a book by uh, Annie McKee called The Resonant Leader. And one of the things that I do in my, my little coaching stance presentation is I offer up this very quick little exercise. Um, and I don't like exercises because they take away from the time that I get to talk. <laughs> it's a joke. Um, but this was an exception. Uh, and the exercise is name, uh, name a person who changed your life or career, a person with whom you would not be here today. You would be a totally different person without their contribution. Uh, think about their name and think about if you have other people that have affected you in this way, think of their names and then just uh, list a few moments for you where that change clicked, you know, where that thing happened for you. Because we tend to remember that that yeah. moment of, of epiphany. Um, and then I say, okay, cool. Now think of someone who tried to manage your performance, uh, that, that tried to uh, change the way that you do something or your behavior or whatever. And it could be in life, could be at work. Um, a lot of times this comes in the form of feedback which is a word that gives lots of people anxiety just hearing it. Yeah, uh, that and the word accountability, um, and or or performance review is the the most obvious version of this. And so, write down some names, write down some events, things that they did. Uh, if you learned anything, write that down. And then uh, and then we go back and we say, okay, um, all right, let's look at number one here. How did this? What did this elicit in you? What what feelings? bubbled up for you. Not what did it make you think, right. but like viscerally, how did, how make did you feel? Yeah. yeah how, did, how did it make you feel? And everybody, you know, they always throw out all these awesome ideas about, you know, I felt inspired, empowered, uh, grateful. Um, I think uh, when, when you were there, you said it made me want to actually go and do this for someone do that else. for other people. Yeah. Um, by the way, uh, you are one of the people that, uh, that uh, inspired me so much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's true. Uh, so for the, uh, for the feedback one, I say, okay, well, how did this make you feel like you're thinking about people giving you, uh, you know, instructions on how to yeah. be better, you know, what can, and everybody's like, ugh, I, it, it made me feel angry. It made me feel, um, you know, defensive or uh, closed yeah. off. Um, and you know, the, 
the the thing is, is that even people, well-meaning people who give us feedback and feedback is part of life. We're going to get it. We're going to have to give it. It's okay. Um, but you know, it, it, we have a limbic response to yeah. directive feedback and we, we have a very different response to, to inspiration. We are, we are pulled. And so I think the most critical sort of, certainly not from a nuts and bolts standpoint, but from a sort of vision standpoint, uh, I tell people that first one, that's coaching. That's what you're going for. That we can harness this, this um, inspirational kind of um, effect to, to good effect, to get people to, to transcend their current capability, their current limitations. They, they can do amazing things when they, when they can just imagine when they can envision something. Um, And, and that's why uh, things like troubleshooter solving problems. Can you, can you get my people to do this? How can I just, how can I stop this thing from happening to me? Like those are, um, that's that's what they call and lean the the problem or the but the solution lens like just sort of yeah. pasting solutions on on problems. That's not coaching. That's not coaching. And so I try to. I, I feel like that little exercise really illustrates what we're going for. We're not there to to be troubleshooters. We're not there to be directive and tell people what to do. There is certain kinds of coaching that's more along those lines um, that sort of blurs some of these stances a little bit. Uh, but it's really not your. Uh, in my view, anyway, contemporary agile coaching, at least not the kind that I do. And so, right. so that's really what I, what I'm trying to instill in people. And sometimes it takes a lot of work to get there, but it helps as a coach to know, ah, this is the thing that I'm hoping to, to get someone to. And uh, a lot of times in coaching engagements, it's a good idea to just let them know exactly what this is and what this isn't so that they know before we get into it, uh, they're not disappointed yeah, and I'm not yeah. going to give them tips and tricks uh, or, or not many uh, up front. Um, and that really what we're trying to do is understand what success looks like and just let's work together to come up with ways to co-create uh, a path to get there. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I mean, it helped them figure out how to fix their own issues whenever possible. Right. Instead of you fixing them for them. Cool. Let's, I really appreciate you doing this, man. Um, if people want to reach out to you, What's the best way for them to do that? So you can find me on LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, see the show notes for details. Yep. Um, I'm also, you can you can just find me on meetup.com. I run the, I currently, at the time of this podcast, I run the Agile Lean NYT community of practice, which is open to anyone. Uh, we have, uh, we kind of alternate, our programming alternates between um, talking about how we do things at the times, different kinds of agile practices or sort of agile adjacent practices, different thought leaders from inside the times, including myself, uh, but not limited to myself, uh, as well as thought leaders from, from outside the times. Uh, we've had uh, such awesome characters as Vasco Duarte, uh, we had the great Dave Pryor. Uh, actually, we didn't have you publicly. We should, we should have you back and you should talk to all of America. Um, we had, uh, we're having Jim Benson coming up, which yes. is another public one. Excited about that. Um, and so, and then I also have my own uh, community of practice that I, that I run. Um, it is called Insurgent Agility. And it is, like I said before, it is really focused on um, a more kind of uh, agnostic application of agile practices and mindsets that uh, hopefully go beyond just like corporate applications and software. Uh, we're trying to get into how 
Uh, I think about agile in the arts and creative endeavors and, you know, just any kind of team can, can be more agile. There are ways to do it. And it, and so I try to, to uh, reframe that outside of technology. Cause a lot of times people are really hungry for it, but, but they feel like they're uh, kind of shut out because maybe they're, they're not technology folks. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'll make sure we put links to all that in there. And I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you for having me, Dave. And I'll be seeing you very soon. Yeah, cool. Thanks. All right. Take care, bud.